The following podcast contains movie spoilers, unpopular opinions, and outdated pop cultural references. In three, two, one. Yes. <laughs> Rolling sound, quiet. Speak. Good day, good world, and welcome to Subgenre, a podcast about the movies. I'm your host, Josh Dassel. On Subgenre, we get specific about films outside the major categories, and in season one, that focuses on the sleek and sexy subgenre of submarine movies. In today's episode, we travel all the way across the Atlantic Ocean for a French-language actioner. It stars the slightly taller Tom Cruise-esque actor, Francois Seville, and is the directing debut of its writer, Antonin Baudry. Sacre bleu! We're talking about Le Chandeloupe. The Wolf's Call. And with me live in Studio K today to break things down is our guest host. She is the author of the new book, Art Curious, Stories of the Unexpected, Slightly Odd, and Strangely Wonderful in Art History, released by Penguin Books, the infectiously listenable host of the hit podcast, Art Curious, co-produced by Kabunki, and honestly, a woman who reads more books in a month than I read in my 30s. And did I also mention she's my wife? It's Jennifer Dassel. Hello, Jennifer. Hi. Happy to be here. This is so fun to have you in the studio. Am I basically your first live in-studio guest? You are. You are it. You are You are the person who is christening the studio. And should we mention that we are recording this episode on Valentine's Day 2021. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. I would not want to spend any other Valentine's with anyone else, nor would I want to be doing anything else on Valentine's Day than talking about a submarine movie. I'm certain that's true. <laughs> did, did you have any idea when you married me all those years ago that, that you would be spending February 14th talking sub movies? I'm sure that was first thing on your mind. 100%. Yeah. So submarine movies, you've lived with me for a long time. We've been together. I have made you watch these movies of, of various sorts over time. Are you now or have you ever been a submarine movie fan or are you just humoring me? I think I'm sub-neutral, if that's a possibility. I remember watching a lot of these movies when I was younger, like Crimson Tide, like The Hunt for Red October. I watched them of my own volition and I liked them, but I don't remember like loving them. So I, uh, yeah, I agree with you here in that I probably am humoring you more than not, but I don't dislike them. So yeah, somewhere in the middle. Well, well, even if we're not necessarily going into this as someone who loves uh, submarine movies, which is totally okay, it's totally fun to have a much more accomplished podcast host than myself in studio to talk about it today. We are talking about Le Chant de Loup. Why don't you set the film up for us? Yes. So this is a 2019 French action thriller film that was directed and written by a first timer and a former diplomat named Antonin Baudry. And I actually found out he was also a graphic novelist for a while, or a graphic illustrator at least. The plot centers around a military underwater acoustics expert, which in French is the oreille d'or, or the golden ear, as they call him. I love that. Who, with this war in Europe looming, basically uses his ears to clear his own name and to thwart a mistaken nuclear launch order before it's too late. So we're trying to we're trying to save the world like every other submarine movie I have ever seen. I good good, good plot setup so far. Okay, keep going. <laughs> this stars Francois Seville as you mentioned earlier. He was in a movie called As Above So Below and Frank. It also stars Omar C from X-Men Days of Future Past and Jurassic World and also actor director Mathieu Kasovitz from Amelie. And sound design was by Randy Tom. 
from The Revenant. Yeah, of course, and and sound design in this movie about a person using their ears to save the world is is super important. So so having somebody like Randy Tom on here, uh, I I think they they made a good investment. It was made on a twenty two million dollar budget by the French film company Pathé, probably one of the most famous French film companies. Oh, sure. Yeah, and its worldwide gross to date was more than twelve point five million, and it was released in the U.S. as The Wolf's Call. Right, and the the Wolf's Call it. it showed up on Netflix one day. I said, what is this? And, and, and went to go watching it, not really realizing uh, going into watching this film that it would be in French. Uh, and and that I would be reading subtitles. I feel like every submarine movie I'd seen to this point was really about the U.S. and the Russians, or at least Mm -hmm. some variation therein. So yeah, this was a whole new thing for me to even not having a whole lot of submarine movie experience. And we still have the Russians. We still get the Russians. True, true. (laughs) (laughs) But mostly at this point, it was like, it's like French on French action for, yeah. for most of this film. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. French on French action may, may be a whole other movie as well. <laughs> That's a different season of subgenre, but... Uh, we'll get to it. We'll, we'll absolutely get to it, and, and maybe this is the best time to start talking about our feature presentation. <laughs> our feature presentation is Le Chant de Loupe, The Wolf's Call in English. And uh, it starts, as many submarine movies do, with some titles on screen, giving us a a, a quote, putting us in the mood. And in this case, uh, those beginning words come from Aristotle. Human beings come in three kinds, the living, the dead, and those who go to sea. Yeah, not overly dramatic or anything. <laughs> it's from Aristotle. So, I, yeah, no. true. I suppose if you're going to have dramatics, I, I, coming from Aristotle makes some sense. But yes, we, we're, we're going to be talking about the living, the dead, and those who go to sea who exist somewhere in this middle plane. It opens in an odd way for me. Same. Yeah. I didn't really know what I was getting into. No, be, because the opening of this film is not at sea. The opening of this film, really, is, is not at sea. It's not on a boat. It's not with sailors. We open on the Syrian coast with, I guess, French special forces. And I have to say that right away from the very beginning, for those first couple of minutes, I wasn't sure what period we were actually in. Yes. Until we start seeing, you know, equipment, and then you realize that it's modern day. But for a minute, I was like, is this in the 60s? Is it I, don't, I had no idea what to expect. It just felt like it was out of time, and it was definitely out of a submarine at that point. Well, it kind of felt like Rambo. It's, a, it's, yeah. it's like I had signed up for a submarine movie and immediately got Rambo, and I was incredibly confused at the beginning. But what we soon find out is that, yes, it is French Special Forces. They are uh, on a mission in Syria, and we then get to go on board a French submarine uh, called the Titan. The Titan is uh, sitting off the coast and listening to what is going on as submarines tend to do and they are listening to this battle and escape through the ears of their sonar operator whose uh, real name is am i pronouncing this right is it chantron i think it's chantron yes yeah whatever you just said something like that but everybody calls him socks very interesting yeah there was one line about how at one point he was walking around just in his socks in a previous mission and so that tends to be the nickname that everybody goes with socks And let's just pause there for a second and think about the reality of wandering around a submarine in your socks. It's it's wet. It's a bunch of dudes in a long tube. It just doesn't seem hygienic. And so... uh, 
Yeah. I, I can imagine it already is a place that is not smelling great. <laughs> so walking around in your socks is also not something you would like. It's like taking off your shoes on an airplane and you're like, why, why don't do that? No, no, thank you. That aside, uh, uh, Socks has his, his headphones on. He's listening for these guys who are trying to escape. They're going to jump into the water and they're going to put on scuba tanks and they're going to swim out to this submarine and be taken aboard and escape except for Sox thinks that he hears something out there waiting for them in the deep, and he thinks it might be a submarine, but there's a problem. It's got four blades. There, there is no such thing uh, as far as the French Navy can tell or as far as Sox knows, and he's this encyclopedia of everything there is to know. There is no four-blade submarine. And so it's a mystery. Is it there or is it not there? And ultimately, he's asked to make a call. That seems like something that would really bother me. It says like a lot of this movie depends on this one guy who isn't the captain, who isn't the sub-captain, co-captain. I don't know any terms, so <laughs> sorry. So, that's okay. That's so, not great. Sub-captain, executive officer is going to be your, your, your co-captain. But okay. you're, you're there. You're okay. good. You know what I mean. I do. So uh, this poor guy, it, a lot seems to fall on his shoulders where he's just being asked to make the call real quick. And I'm sure that's probably true of a lot of people who are on submarines or in the military. I don't know. But uh, yeah, this poor guy. This poor guy. And he's got uh, his, his commander leaning over his shoulder going, make a call, make a call, make a call. And finally he does. And he says, okay, no, there's no submarine out there. We're all clear. They go to try to get these poor guys who are swimming out to them on board. And right at that moment, this submarine, this mystery submarine does make an appearance uh, out in the water. It turns on its active sonar, the, the ubiquitous, you know, ping like that, that submarines do giving away the position really of the Titan to a Russian frigate that's sitting nearby. In come the Russians. There we go. Uh, and and the, the French submarine is uh, put in danger. There is a an action sequence that, that takes place, uh, which I think we may end up talking about here in a while, but just this kind of over-the-top action sequence where the Titan narrowly escapes, but in the end it does. The problem is socks. And this is the thing I have to say that the title of the movie comes from, The Wolf's Call, is that active sonar ping. And for someone who isn't well-versed in terms like that, like me, that was a big deal. I had to learn what The Wolf's Call was. Yes. So yes. a lot of Googling happened. That's all right. That's okay. Learning. That's, that's, all, that's all right. And honestly doesn't quite sound like a wolf's call. I know there's a, there's a rough representation of what it is, but okay, that's fine. That's what we're calling it. It's the wolf's call. It's the thing that'll haunt their dreams because uh, that's showing that there's another submarine out there about to kill them. Anyway, Sox's good name is destroyed in this process. The, the guy who could hear and understand anything has made the wrong call, almost got the, the sub sunk, and he's not in a good position. So what happens? Poor Sox. Poor Sox. Uh, we're back in France. We get this setup that explains to us what's going on, which is basically that Russia is really trying to start a war in Europe. Surprise, surprise. And Socks back on land with no boat to uh, float around in right now kind of becomes obsessed with finding this sub. I have to say that this was part of the movie where we transfer off of the boat and onto land. I was sort of relieved and also disappointed. It's kind of the odd thing about being in a submarine movie is that you are stuck in that almost entirely male environment, which we'll get to, I'm sure. And also that kind of very claustrophobic, dark, dense yeah. atmosphere that really causes you to feel that tension. And so when we get to the point where we start seeing everybody off of the boat driving around 
around on land somewhere in France, I actually had this little sigh of relief that felt like the tension was lifting, but it's also like, okay, well, we're away from the really exciting stuff about the movie. So I didn't love this part, I gotta say. Yeah, and it's it's true that on submarine, I mean, the reason they're called submarine movies is they're in a submarine, but a majority of them do take place for the most part in the boats themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, there are exceptions, like for instance, The Hunt for Red October kind of goes all over the globe. It's not always in the boat, but I think The Hunt for Red October keeps that sort of claustrophobic feel in how it positions Jack Ryan and what he's got to do. And and in this case, we don't really, you're right, we don't really do that with socks here. Socks is sort of just sent home to France and it's wide open, wonderful France. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Whatever. It's, it's fine. fine. It's fine, but I agree, I agree with you. It's, it sort of lets a little air out of the balloon. But while he is there, we do give Socks a few things to do. And what he is doing to sort of feed this obsession of trying to find this mystery submarine that doesn't exist is really just a search for information. Um, looking first on the computer where he used to have access in the system to find these things out, realizing that he doesn't have that access anymore. And, and ultimately trying to, you know, hack systems and figure out passwords and things like that just to, to figure out what's going on. While all of that is going on, the Titans captain, the guy referred to as Grand Champ, right, which is this wonderful actor named Rita Kateb, gets promoted from captain of the Titan to captain of the Formidable Formidable. Formidable, which is the French nuclear boat. He was on an attack sub, now he's on the big nuke boat. And the guy who was the XO, uh, is it Dorsey, mm-hmm. uh, played by Omar C, is given command of the Triton. While they're being promoted, we cut back to Sox, who is busy hacking his commander's computer and in the process discovering that they're this four-blade mystery phantom submarine might be a real thing. Because he's haunted by this idea of this mysterious four-blade sub. So he is searching out information wherever he can, and one of the places is the bookstore. Yeah, and he goes to the bookstore looking for a book on, on spectral harmonies, ends up in the process of doing this meeting the owner, whose name is uh, Diane, played by the actress Paula Beer, and they fall in love. So in the midst of what has been this action-filled movie where we've sort of put the brakes on it and come back to Paris, you do what you do when you're in Paris and you fall in love and they start a relationship. Aww. But I do have to say that was another one of those moments that really took me out of the action. But there was a reason for it because we know that during their little emotional tryst thing that they have going on, they share or she actually has a joint while they are lounging in bed together, having a lovely time. He doesn't actually smoke it, right? You know, I I don't <laughs> I don't know whether or not he a cinematic time. He could have. Yes. He could have. But they show her basically sort of like breathing oh, right. the weed smoke into his mouth. And right. this is actually an important moment because it comes back to haunt everyone yes, it, yet it again. Come, it will come back around. It will come back around. So we get a moment out of this relationship that may have some negative effects, but we do get one that has a positive. And this is that in talking about this book on spectral harmonies that Diane was unable to find in their bookstore for him, unfortunately, she mentions that it wasn't in their database, that it gets cleared periodically and, and refreshed, which causes Sox to understand or realize that maybe that same thing is happening to the computer system uh, at the French Navy. And maybe this submarine has been cleared from the computers, but you can't clear it from everywhere. And that everywhere includes the print records of the French Navy, which is where he decides to go next. So he sneaks in and he finds this match to that previous sonar signal that he'd been looking for, which was this long for 
forgotten Soviet four-blade sub called the Timor-2, the Timor-3. And so we know that they didn't scrap the submarine. It still exists. Now, the, the Russians never got rid of the thing. Why? Why would they? Keep it going. <laughs> it works. And so he is then discovered by the commandant, who was played by the actor Jean-Yves Berthelou, I guess is how you pronounce it. And so he's arrested. So this is a big moment because it looks like he is first of all, been shut down because of his accident with his golden ear where he made the wrong call. And now he's sneaking around just trying to get information. So he is kind of doubly in trouble now with what's going on. But then the commandant follows up on Sox's story and then releases him, realizes that he is coming up with this information and lets him serve under Grandchamp's new command. But... This, of course, does not go well because, unfortunately, just before they put him out to sea, he has to do all the pre-training tests and everything. And uh, it's realized that he cannot go through with duty because they found drug traces in his urine when they did the urine test. Yeah, so you get a moment in this movie that is very similar to Crimson Tide. There are going to be some echoes, I think, in this movie, to me, of other submarine movies. This is kind of a conglomeration of like little bits from good submarine movies. So you have this moment where all the sailors are sort of standing out on the dock in front of the boat and getting ready to go. And there's this, you know, very patriotic looking lineup of everybody. And it's in that moment then, yes, that Sox gets called out of line. By Grand Champ. By Grand Champ. Um, who is the guy who requested him in the first place and, and made sure that he was going to be on his boat and be his number one uh, golden ear and, and tells him he can't go. And I think that's even sadder because you can tell as the movie is leading you up, it's kind of cueing you into the relationship between Sox and Grand Champ, where you can tell that he has learned to rely on Grand Champ and to trust him. Even when he's made this bad call, he is still willing to bring him back, giving him a second chance. And so to be cut loose by Grand Champ, I think is probably super devastating for Sox. Yeah, also the fact of just having these two strikes on him in a row, including this particular one, more than likely means that this guy, no matter how good he is, his naval career is probably over. And we've got to say that, again, this links back, that drug test links back apparently to the joint that his new girlfriend had been just relaxingly smoking at him, sort of. So again, from what we know, we don't ever see him lighting up the joint with her, but it looks like it's just like a contact eye or something like that, that his career is over because of her and that action. Thank you, Diane. Yeah. It's a huge emotional moment. He takes all of the gear that he had in his duty bag and essentially just tosses it in the ocean and gives up. This is it for him. He knows that all he has is Diane and uh, maybe we want that at this point. Maybe we don't. I know because of what's happened. This is the part where I was really like, why are you? I mean, it's difficult. I want to support their romantic relationship. It is Valentine's Day after all. (laughs) So let's just go with the romantic subplot. But I guess I don't want to blame her for destroying his military career at this point. But also I want to be like, why are you going back to this chicky babe? Yeah, and and maybe this is a good time to, to talk about this subplot. Subplot detected. So this whole subplot with Diane is boy meets girl at a bookstore. Uh, cute. Cute. There's not quite a meet cute, but the but the you know they meet at the bookstore. She can't immediately provide him with the information that he needs, but that's okay because it gives him a chance to kind of go get a beer and hang out and fall in love. And they end up in a very almost a. Uh, I'm not. I'm not even sure the words I want to use. It's not. It's not necessarily unique, but they they have this game that they play with with one another that involves his ears. Yes. So she 
consistently tries to sneak up on him and basically be unseen and unheard. But that's impossible because of his golden ears, the doré d'or. So she can never sneak up on him and surprise him because he always can hear her coming. He always knows it's her. And that's, again, cute. But I keep wanting this relationship to not have been such a big deal. Like, I think in some ways, from someone who has no movie experience and no background with a plot or screenwriting, I wanted this just to be maybe a little fling that then tosses everything into despair and disrepair and problems. But instead, it ends up being, sort of spoiler alert, a relationship that continues throughout the rest of the movie. And you get the idea that they maybe stay together. And I don't want that for some reason. I don't think that really serves any huge purpose here. Yeah, and the relationship itself, to me, feels more like a device than a relationship, I guess, in, in terms of the storytelling. In Definitely. That, yeah, it's a means to getting socks not put on the nuclear boat yeah. so that he can be on Triton and and be the one who is trying to save the world, uh, not the one who is trying to destroy the world. It, it is unusual in kind of the submarine movies in general for there to be a romantic plot, Yeah. period. Like, I, I can't recall. I'm thinking, I'm thinking hard if I can remember that happening. And I, honestly, I can't. I mean, you have maybe a female interest here and there. Maybe you have a wife that sends them off to sea with a wave. But romance in a submarine movie, that is unique. I guess that's something that we, in some ways, could applaud them for because this is a movie that was from 2019. So two years or less since we've been recording this episode. So to try to take a different spin and have a different little subplot, I guess in an, <laughs> that's a good thing because there's probably not a whole lot that you could do to make a sub-movie super fresh after all this time. You stuff it with all the tropes from all the other movies mm-hmm. in terms of the action, but then you bring in the romance, and they are French. It's true. You got to put the French romance in, in the French movie, I guess. Ooh la la. <laughs> well, I guess that takes us back to where we left off, which is... Uh, Socks has sort of kind of because of Diane. I know we keep throwing it back on her, but poor Diane. Thanks, Sorry, Diane. Diane. But Socks has been basically chucked out of the Navy or, or he's about to goes back to the base. And immediately upon getting back to the base, there is a bunker with guards in front, like trying to seal this thing up because apparently there has been a nuclear missile launch detected that is heading for France. Everybody else who isn't Socks on this base seems to be just like like heading to the commissary. Like there doesn't seem to be anybody around that's also running to get into the bunker to get away from the missile launch. And so it is a bit confusing. Either Sox is the most motivated person on the base or uh, all the people in the bunker are like, peace out, and are closing this thing and not telling anybody that the missile is coming. And he totally sneaks in last minute, like, through the door as it's closing, very Indiana Jones kind of situation. Um, And then, for the longest time, just kind of stands around, and people notice him while he's walking through the bunker, and they're just very casual about it. Their socks, no big deal. Their socks, no big deal. Not supposed to be there, but whatever. But to be fair, to be fair, there is a nuclear missile heading for France. Everybody's brains might be in 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 a place that isn't on socks, because not not only is there a nuclear missile heading for France, it seems as if it has been launched from a submarine, and it seems as if that submarine is the Timor Trois, this four-prop submarine which isn't supposed to exist. So this is the one where all of a sudden we know that he knows something, a bit of crucial information that no one knows yet. Yeah, and if it's the Timor Trois that's launching a nuclear missile, that means it's Russia that's launching the nuclear missile, which means that Russia is instigating a nuclear war against France, which means that France, uh, if that is true, uh, is going to need to retaliate. Uh, But like you mentioned, before they can retaliate, they need to verify that 
this is actually what everyone says it is. And the way they're going to do that is by sound. So this is the one thing where it's like, okay, thank goodness that they knocked socks off of his duty with Grand Champ on the submarine, because then otherwise there may not be somebody who's able to really use that golden ear to detect whether or not this is a real threat. Right. So you get against the best wishes, by the way, of kind of the, the leadership in this bunker. Socks is put down in the seat. He puts on the headphones. He listens to the launch from the Timor 3 that was recorded and confirms, yeah, to my golden ear, to my encyclopedic knowledge, that sounds like a nuclear missile launch and B, it sounds like a Russian nuclear missile launch, whatever that sounds like. But he's able to determine that it's Russian and, and not anything else. And to me, that scene where we we know that there is a nuclear missile that has been launched, that it is heading right for essentially the people that are in this bunker, and they are watching it on screen, and they are watching the interceptor missile, which has not been tested before. They, are, they, they make that clear. Come closer and closer and closer to this nuclear weapon, and you just sort of get a chance to look at the looks of horror on everybody's faces and anxiety as these things get closer and closer and closer. They get right where they are supposed to intercept, and then the interceptor missile passes the nuclear missile line, indicating that it missed it and that the nuke is still alive and is headed right for them. To me, that was one of the strongest moments in the film. I think that was a really, really great scene, and I think probably by far the strongest scene that's not on the sub. Oh, I I absolutely agree with that. And uh, maybe this is a good time to take a break. We'll be back with more subgenre. If you've listened to other podcasts, and really by this point we're going to assume you have, then you've probably heard our name. Kabunki, the silliest name in superb podcasts and creative video. We produce the shows you can't wait to binge, like the acclaimed Art Curious podcast. And of course, this thing, can we call it a show? Oh, sure we can. Subgenre. But did you know we're also available to creatively consult on your podcast too? That's right. We're here to turn your hobby into a professional-grade production that sounds just like the storytelling, discussion, or investigative podcast you download, all with help from our award-winning team. Treat your show seriously and get noticed with help from Kabunki. Mention this ad to get 10% off your first consultation. Find out more at kabonki.com. That's kabunki.com. Kabunki. Com. Kabunki. Oh, that's going to leave a mark. You're back with Subgenre. We are talking about Le Chant de Loupe, The Wolf's Call with Jennifer Dassel from the Art Curious Podcast. Hello. How are you doing? Are you hanging in there? I'm hanging in there. Excellent. Excellent. So we, we're in the midst of a very uh, harrowing part, I think, but maybe we should talk about something that's a little subpar. In subpar, we are talking about moments in the film that just bring the whole thing to an immediate and abrupt stop. Things that are so bad, but maybe so good that we just hold some special place of affection for them. And I really don't think we can go any further without talking about the scene from the beginning of the movie or near the beginning of the movie where the Titans position as they are picking up those divers is given away with the wolf's call 
to the nearby Russian frigate and the Russian frigate comes after them. So then we get not only a very tense, you're in the submarine scene, but then you get into this huge like helicopter chase battle situation. Yeah, so it's not enough that we've got a four blade uh, mystery sub out there that's giving away our position. When they give away our position, this really kind of new high tech, newfangled looking Soviet frigate launches a chopper. The chopper flies out over the water And we get what, for a moment, is a very cool sequence of this chopper lowering and then dipping down into the water, this kind of sonar, uh, you know, listening device thing that spreads itself apart really quickly, almost like the legs of a spider. This part was actually really cool. And it does it a couple times. So is it basically something that's meant to disrupt the sonar so that the people in the submarine can't tell what's going on. I think it's a very uh, high-tech listening device. But it's cool. But it's so cool. It's very cool. And it's unlike anything I have seen in other movies. And so for that alone, I went, oh yeah, we're about to do something very cool here. But then. Oh man, but then. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) In order to get away from this pesky mosquito of of a chopper, the captain, Grandchamp, who is on uh, the sub at that time, says, you know what we're going to do? We got no other way to get away from this thing. They're going to find us. They're going to be able to drop depth charges right on top of us and and blow us up. The only thing that we can do is get rid of this chopper. And I guess it's a good thing that they had French special forces aboard. Sure, because they have a rocket launcher. Oh, so then Grandchamp gets on basically the roof of the submarine. They, They surface. Yeah. Climbs out. Yep, he's standing on the conning tower of the submarine with, you know, one other dude with an automatic weapon and Grandchamp has a rocket launcher. And up to this point, I was like, this is really cool. This is going well. I like where this is going. And then the rocket launcher comes into play and it's like, oh no. Well, okay, but let's be really specific how the rocket launcher comes into play here, which is there is, again, this chopper that's sort of like buzzing the submarine and, you know, maybe has guns on it and and actually definitely has guns on it and (laughs) can do some damage. And in order to get this thing, to shoo this thing away from the submarine, Grandchamp brings his buddy up with the automatic weapon, has him fire at the chopper, which kind of, okay, I'm, you know, I'm an armored chopper, whatever, I'm going to get out of the way. But then Grandchamp raises the big rocket launcher to take a shot at the helicopter and all of a sudden we're, we're Rambo on a submarine. Yeah, but it doesn't even go well at the very oh no at the very top of it so you have that moment where it's like I'm struggling with the weapon oh no I'm gonna get shot and and it's it's <sighs> <laughs> just big size it's is big, all that it it's is it's big size it's okay it's fun I guess that we're firing a rocket launcher at the chopper but then the rocket launcher uh, the trigger the safety on it gets jammed and we can't get the safety off and and time is ticking down where we're going to get shot and Grandchamp comes up with a brilliant idea about how to get the safety unstuck. I don't even remember this. Does he ask his friend to shoot it? Yeah, he asks his friend to okay, shoot it. Okay, so there you go. I do remember this. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So his friend shoots the stuck safety. With an automatic weapon. That seems safe. While Grandchamp is holding it. That's smart. Shoots, yes. Okay. Shoots, <laughs> shoots, shoots a rocket launcher with an automatic weapon, manages to hit the safety and not Grandchamp allowing the rocket launcher to become live. Grandchamp is able to aim it at the oncoming chopper and boom, chopper becomes a giant fireball and and all is saved. I guess we just have to 
praise the filmmakers again that they're putting something new into this genre of they, submarine movies. They are definitely putting something new in it. I might reserve the praise on it uh, all the way, but yeah, good on you for for trying something. Something but, new. For something new. But that moment just took me out of the movie for a minute. I yeah. think maybe even more than any other thing that happens from that point forward. I think that's fair. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Something's got to be subpar, I guess, and 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 maybe that's the thing. But uh, that gets us back to talking about the end of this plot. So when we left off, there was a nuclear uh, missile that was heading for France, and French forces had tried to intercept the thing with an interceptor missile, and the interceptor missile had missed, uh, as missiles, I guess, uh, might do. Yeah, they're not findles. Yeah, hiddles. Oh, gosh. Right. Sorry. Um <laughs> And, and so the nuke is still on its way. But in that moment, Sox, who uh, just a minute ago has made a call that this is a nuclear launch by a nuclear submarine, similar to what he did in the beginning of the movie where he was forced to make this call of, you know, is there or is there not a submarine in the water? And he makes a call, which turns out to be the wrong one. In this moment, Sox determines that maybe he has made another error and potentially can correct it. I mean, poor guy, again, he's making these two major mistakes, but at least in this moment, he's able to course correct a little bit. I guess he was able to course correct by finding the details about the four blade sub originally yeah. also, but man, he's, he's all bad for this guy. He's always a day late and a dollar short oh, on, yeah. on figuring things out. But in this moment, you know, nobody has a reason to trust socks because <laughs> socks tends to make some mistakes, but in listening with his golden ear detects that, yeah, it is a Russian missile, but the sound of it sounds not quite right. And that's when he discovered that there is actually no nuclear payload on there. So it's a fake nuke. Yeah, it's a dud missile. Yeah. So everybody around is trying to call the chief of staff to basically rescind the launch mission. Yeah, they're, they're, uh, they're, call, they're calling the French White House going, yeah, guys, the it's president. not real. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's this ticking clock that's been put on it where when originally there was suspected to be, and Sox confirmed, that there was a Russian missile launch that the Formidable, the, the tactical nuclear sub, was put on launch order, which basically is a non-rescindable order. It's, it's a, hey, hey, Formidable, you've got nukes aboard, go to your predetermined point and fire them. And don't listen to anybody who tells you not to do that because they might be the bad guys. Yeah. And even the French president apparently cannot have this stand down order. So there's nothing that can be done. Right. Is the story. Right. It is similar again to other submarine movies. It's very similar to Crimson Tide in that there is this sort of nuclear missile launch that is about to happen and communications are the problem in getting people to stop it or to do it. And and in this case, yeah, uh, Formidable is really on this one-way course to destroying the world that nobody can seem to stop, including the French president. And so to make things worse, the French president puts our guys on hold <laughs> for a minute where we get like the on hold music so that he can go talk to the Americans who haven't been sharing information very well. But in talking to the Americans, finds out and relays to Sox and uh, everybody else that, yeah, it's the Timor 3. Yeah, Russia kept it around for a while. But oh, by the way, they sold it to jihadists. Oh, and that is who has launched the missile. I think I sort of half forgot about that part. Yeah. They're, 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 it was complicated. It's complicated, kind of a twist of events that happens in a short period of time. But basically it boils down to you have a third party that is trying to pose as Russia so that they can start a nuclear conflict between the two superpowers. They're a chaos element and, and are Fun. trying to cause chaos and they're doing it. Cool. Great. <laughs> Good job, guys. 
So what do you do? Uh, you, you pull a Jack Ryan and Sox and the Commandant then jump into a chopper and fly their way out to the submarine, to the Titan, because they know this information. They've got to relay it. Titan doesn't know this. They're sitting out there thinking that-, that You mean the, the Formidable uh, the, or Titan? No, no, no. They're, There's they're, too many subs in this sub movie. I'm just saying it right now. Grand Champ is on the Formidable and can't be contacted. So how do you get in touch with uh, with Grand Champ on, on a submarine that can't be contacted? You got to get to another submarine that's faster, that can get there. And so we're going back to the Titan from the beginning of the movie. That's right. Right, which is now commanded by Dorsey. Mm-hmm. And so Sox and the commander fly out to the Titan. Uh, they are there with one mission, which is to hunt down Formidable. If you can't contact her, you must destroy her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is the point in which I got that inkling that maybe at the beginning it wasn't going to work out so well. And this is because I turned to you. We watched this movie together in our house. And I turned to you and I said, Dorsey isn't long for this world. And the only reason I had to back that up was because Dorsey has like kind eyes and he seems nice to Socks. <laughs> and I was like, that is not a good thing. If he's like very kind to Socks and keeps referring to him almost like my son and like my pal. And yeah. so I was like, oh, I know it's going to end bad. Yeah. And we're uh, getting there. We're getting there. That's definitely not far from the truth. They get on the Titan. We get a few more minutes with Dorsey as they are trying to message Grandchamp somehow. They've got low-frequency antennas. They're trying in other ways to sort of get messages to him. But Grandchamp both can't uh, by order and won't answer the messages because of the uncertainty of what's going on and, and whether or not that is interfering with what he believes his mission to be. Yeah. Who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? So for about the third time in the movie, I, I mean, maybe there's more, but for about the third time in the movie that I can think, Socks is sat down in a seat. He's given a set of headphones. He's told to ID something. He's lo- like, figure it out. Yeah, to figure it out. So in the beginning of the movie, we were trying to figure out what was the mystery submarine. Somewhere in the middle, we were trying to figure out who launched the missile with our ears. And now we are trying to figure out with our ears, where is Formidable Mm -hmm. so that we can go and blow it up. Yep, 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 yep. This is hard for Sox because he and Grandchamp go back. Yeah, basically he's being asked to ID where his captain is so that his captain can be destroyed right. under the order of Dorsey and also all the other commandants on land. Um, but also it's got to be hard for him because he has had reason to doubt himself now. Multiple times he's doubted yeah. himself and his opinions and his abilities. Sure. And in this one moment, his abilities do come through for him. He is able to identify where the formidable is, but he makes the decision not to admit that. Mm -hmm. You see a lot of close-ups in this movie, by the way, of people staring and kind of squinting as they're listening very deeply and intently through headphones. So if you like that kind of thing, for sure, you get that in this movie. Oh, you got headphones, (laughs) you got sweating, you got lots of faces uh, illuminated by LED lighting. It's perfect in that respect for a sub movie. And we'll get to this, but once they're playing these two subs off of each other, the Titan and the Formidable, they have different lighting so that you know in these scenes where you're back and forth between two different sub groups that you can tell the difference because one is lit in like this very blue light and the other is lit in red. So you know exactly real quick who you are looking at, which team. Which is a really nice, simple cinematic shorthand. But in this moment where Sox, he knows where the Formidable is. He's just not willing to give up his friend uh, knowing that the friend is going to be killed. And so he bails Mm -hmm. and in the moment of need, runs away and leaves. And so that 
leaves really only one option, which is that Dorsey, who is also Sox's friend, also a friend to Grandchamp. Who has the kind eyes. Who has the kind eyes. Uh-huh says just one thing left and that's basically to go and knock on the door and <laughs> and so Dorsey dons a a wetsuit and scuba tanks and takes a, a diving sled and goes out the torpedo doors and basically swims to the Formidop. What do you think is going to happen? <laughs> Something I'm sure good? That, I'm sure they'll open the door. This is when I again turned towards you and I gave you sad eyes and said I told you so this is Dorsey's end yeah. and indeed and it indeed. is Dorsey's end. And what an end because as Dorsey nears the Formidable, he is detected in the water by the sonarman on the on the Formidable. And they can tell from the signature, the sound signature of the sled that it is a diver. They mistake it as someone coming to essentially, you know, like a demolition person to plant explosives or something else on the boat. And they fire a torpedo. Yeah. And the torpedo hits Dorsey. Bye-bye. Straight on by Dorsey. I mean, I guess I hope that that's a quick end, but it's uh, not how you want to go, I guess. No. I mean, really. No, and I don't think it is because if I'm not mistaken, it knocks the air tank <gasps> out of that's right out of Dorsey's uh, out of Dorsey's mouth. But really, he's just left stranded. And then we just kind of see him sink down into the depths. He floats away into the depths of the sea, never to be seen again. <sighs> that's even worse. It's not good. Ugh. Poor Dorsey. I liked him. Uh huh. Sucks. <laughs> <laughs> So Dorsey's gone. Sox is on the boat and ends up actually being trapped because this torpedo that kills Dorsey or knocks him down to the bottom of the ocean, that torpedo actually hits the Titan. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So everyone is kind of screwed at this point on the Titan. Yeah, there's fires, there's people uh, trying to close hatches, things are leaking, and Sox is essentially trapped in his bunk but is dragged to safety by the Commandant. Oh, yeah, yeah. That part's pretty powerful, too. Yes. I know we are quickly heading toward the thrilling conclusion of this film, but before we do that, let's take a deep dive. In today's deep dive, I want to talk about something that I think maybe you are uniquely positioned to talk with me about, maybe unlike some of the other guest hosts that are going to be on the program, which is film and art. And let me set it up for the people who haven't met you before. Not only are you the effervescent host of the Art Curious podcast, where you talk about the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history, not only are you the author of a book of the same name, you are also a museum art curator and and general smart person. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, I've got a background in art history, two degrees in art history, and I work with art for a living. So me as a layman, I make a distinction between movies and film. And then I make a distinction between film and art. Mm, Even though I know that they are one and the same, or at least maybe in some circles are considered the same, which is why there's sort of this subgenre of art film. Yes. Yeah. So, So talk to me as someone who works in and with art Where does film land in the art pantheon? I think this is really tricky. And I've actually thought a little bit about this in the fact that there's something that's called, you know, art with capital A that we think of Mm -hmm. as the visual arts, like painting, sculpture, photography, even. And then there's some variations therein. There is like a video art, which is not movies, which is a whole separate thing. Um, But then you talk about like the arts in general, and that can really be anything. It can be film, it can be movies, it can be dance, it can be music. So it's very strange because we do have these little segmented things going on. But for all intents and purposes, I would say that movies like this, we don't consider them 
art. We consider it more to be like a pop culture kind of thing. Regardless of how artsy or artistic a film is, it's like its own separate beast. Mm. Is there a criteria, I guess, maybe that helps it to fall outside the definition of art? Or is that just by tradition? I think it's more by tradition, just by standing. But I would have to say, now this is a little bit of deep cut or deep. This is um, the deep dive. Yeah, yeah, we're doing it. Uh, More like inside baseball for the fact that you and I are married. We've known each other for a long time. And you've had the benefit or lack thereof (laughs) of following me around many an art museum and you've seen your fair share of pretty terrible video art. This is true. And so we've had many conversations where you're like, why is this so bad? And it's because I would say most video art isn't coming to the viewer with an interest in story the way that I think most movies are to mm. a degree. I can't tell you why, but oh, there's the cat. <laughs> why, don't we let, why don't we let the cat in? <laughs> go, go ahead, keep talking. All right. So in general, I would say a lot of video art is more about the aesthetics, more about what you're seeing, and less about anything else. Every once in a while, you will have something that's extremely cinematic in expanse and scope. And you might even have dialogue. But in general, I don't think it's about that. And I think that's what in general makes movies good and video art, not always my favorite thing. Right. Is there in your mind, in the minds of of people in the art world, is there a move at all towards bringing these two things closer together or or are we destined to be ships that pass each other in the night? No, I think there definitely is a move to bring them closer together. I am sure that if I knew more about video art in general, I could be able to pull out some really good examples. Not even video video art, but like, is there a day that I'm going to walk into the Met and they're going to be playing a Scorsese picture? I mean, yes, in that they actually do that kind of thing where they have film series at museums all the time, but it's still under the category of like an event or performing arts and not like you're going to have a gallery full of a Scorsese film. Right, right. So, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to show up and there's, there's not going to be like Casablanca or the Maltese Falcon, like, like permanently playing in a gallery somewhere on the wall because it's art as much as the, the Renoir that's next to it. But is that because there is such a longer start and stop time or the, the span between the start and stop time in a movie is, you know, an hour and a half hour, 45 minutes longer. Whereas for video art, you could technically sit there and watch something, but then I see now what's happening is I'm thinking as I'm talking and I'm thinking about Christian Markley's The Clock that came out a number of years sure. ago, which was a 24 hour art installation really yeah. of film that was ongoing and you could just pop in. I mean, maybe that's part of it though, is it's meant to be an experience and not really a storyline to follow. So would you want to see the Maltese Falcon on a screen in a gallery knowing that you've come in somewhere in the middle and you don't know what's going on necessarily if you haven't already seen it a bunch of times? It's a wonderful question. I'm, w- I'm, willing to, I'm willing to put it to the test. Other art curators, contemporary art curators especially, who focus on video art, come at me. Let me know. I don't know. I have to say in general, a piece of video art has to grab me right away. Whereas a movie, like I will sit through and enjoy a movie for a while and see where it comes up. But if video art doesn't grab me in 30 seconds or less, then I'm out. I'm out of the gallery immediately. I'm, I'm waiting for the day I can walk into the Louvre and watch Karate Kid too. but that's just me. <laughs> Let's get back to our feature presentation and the end of Le Chanteloupe, The Wolf's Call. And so on Formidable, Grandchamp and his XO start the end game on launching a nuclear missile, which has to do with this thing called the slice. This is really cool. I actually knew nothing about this point, but this is that the XO and the Grand Champ both have different set of codes that have to be confirmed to move forward with the actual launch itself. 
Right. And part of that is that each of them, or potentially maybe it's just Grand Champ, has what is a circuit board. It's a kind of a thin, clear circuit board. They call it the slice. It has to be inserted into a particular drive in a particular way. And then he and the XO on different parts of the boat both have to enter the president's code to arm the missile. And as long as that circuit board is in there, the missile is armed and live. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pretty scary stuff. When they do that, the slice is inserted. This is the moment where the the missile door opens. Mm -hmm. We get this sound signature through the water. Sox has come back from being trapped and has sat down in the seat and knows now that the Titan is sinking. He's got to do something and sits down, listens. He hears where the Formidable is. He gets the position that he needs. Titan is able to fire torpedoes at the Formidable. Formidable is able to fire torpedoes at (laughs) Titan. Uh, They pass each other in the water and boom, both submarines are hit. Yeah, this I think is really what I was thinking of when I saw the title of a Guardian review for this movie, which was called Sweaty Sub-on-Sub Action, because it's exactly what's happening in this moment. There's lots of fire, there's lots of sweating, there's so so much anxiety, and then they're just shooting at each other trying to make it stop. There's large phallic objects heading in two different directions. Yep, yep. Sure. Sub-on-sub action. Sub-on-sub action. Mm -hmm. Both subs take direct hits. On Titan, that means that essentially everybody on that sub, save our main character, our, our, our commandant and, and Sox survive just barely. On Formidable, that means that pretty much Grand Champ is the only person left alive on the bridge. I think the XO is around somewhere, but, but Grand Champ is pretty much the only person alive over there. And so you finally get this, call it a phone call, you finally get this call, <laughs> sub-to-sub call from the Titan to the Formidable. And the Titan had been trying to call the Formidable before so that they could say like, please stop, please stop. And it had been pretty much ignored up to this point. Because again, there was that big trust issue of can we trust that this is actually someone telling us to stop for real? Even when it was Dorsey's voice that was calling them, even when it it was somebody that Grandchamp knew and trusted, he still wouldn't or couldn't answer because... You don't know. Has Dorsey been, is, is he doing it under duress? Is, right. Right. Or has he turned coat somehow? Ha- right. You know, and, and it feels, and you feel really bad, I think, for Grandchamp because you know that he is just trying to do his job to the utmost of his abilities. So you have this sensation that he is a really strong, honorable guy trying to do the right thing no matter what. Yeah. But when you are the last person left on a sub that's sinking to the bottom of the ocean, mm-hmm. maybe that's the time where you answer the phone call and- <laughs> And that's that's what Grandchamp does. Hears socks on the other end, right? We haven't heard he hasn't heard Sox's voice to this point, I don't think. No. Hears socks on the other on the other end, begging him not to start a war, that this is the wrong thing to do. I think Sox could have been more clear and said <laughs> and said, it's a it's a fake. Like, don't, don't do it. But he sort of gives him just this, please don't start this war, which in this moment is enough for Grandchamp. And you have this moment where it's like, you know, the the fire in the background, Grandchamp is uh, obviously not doing well. He's on his last legs and he reaches up and it looks like he's going to hit the launch button. And then of course, at the last minute, he reaches up and removes the slice instead. So it's deactivated. The fake out. So good, but manages with his last breath to save us all from nuclear annihilation. He is a hero at the end, even if uh, even if he was on his way to do bad things before that. But war is averted. Formidable sinks to the bottom of the ocean and Titan is about to. So at this point, there's only two people left, really. Yeah. Which is that it's Sox and the Commandant. The problem with that 
uh, among many, many other problems. The problem with that is there really is only one way out of the ship at this point, and that is through the torpedo tubes. And of course, there's only one available, and then you've got two guys left. Yeah, you got you got two guys left, and you need somebody inside to trigger the torpedo tube to essentially open the door to let the other guy out. And once that's done, there is no one to let that last person go or to assist them or to have the, uh, you know, maybe there's only one pressure suit or something that's left. But basically, it comes down to which one of them is going to survive and which one of them is not. And so the commandant, I think, does that whole, like, I'm the captain, I'm going to go down with the ship thing, even though he's not the captain. Uh, But that's basically his role here. And so he very gallantly, I think, lets Sox go forward to escape. Yeah, and Sox is fighting this thing the whole time. But the commandant puts him in the tube, informs him at the last second, hey, Golden Ear, you know, this thing that you've relied on your entire life that's really your bread and butter, when we send you out of this sub, you're going to lose that. You're going to blow your eardrum. The pressure is going to blow your eardrums as you're getting to the top, but you are going to live. Okay, great, cool. Boom, and fires him out the torpedo Mm -hmm. tube. And out he goes. And of course, partway through, you see him kind of giving that like agonized, like, oh, my ears, because his ears are exploding. But I do have to say, in looking up some of the trivia from IMDb on this, Uh that there were some grumbles about this actuality because people were saying that they are so far underwater still, they're several hundred feet underwater, that at that depth, no matter what, you were probably going to get a severe case of the bends so that the actual release here would not have just burst his eardrums. It would have actually killed him. <laughs> there, there is, there is. I thought about that too. There is absolutely that possibility if you are building up too much carbon dioxide on the way up and if you are not exhaling the whole way, which is one thing that you are supposed to do in order to keep that from happening. And maybe he was doing that. Maybe he was doing it, but like the sort of cinematic, uh, you know, suspension of disbelief thing is there are divers that exist who do this for sport and go that far Mm -hmm. down in the ocean and Mm -hmm. come that far back up and don't get the bends because they know how to do it. So I'm just going to assume that in his off time, Sox is a free diver. Also, just the beautiful kind of, you know, symbolism full circle of bringing it back to the fact that Golden Ear is now going to be completely deaf. He's 10 ear. Yeah. So now it's gone. So I, it's just more poetic this way. It's more poetic. And when we do get, you want to talk about sound design, we, we do get when he finally surfaces after being down under the water, the world to him as he lays there and floats and listens to the ocean, the world is muffled. Yeah. So it's lovely. It works well. It works well. Yeah. And then Diane. Now, okay, this is also, so this is the one moment in the film where we cut to him being safe, being back on land. There's a little kind of funereal moment where they throw the wreaths out to sea in thanks and remembrance for all the the lost comrades there, right? But then you end the movie with Sox standing out looking over the water and Diane sneaks up successfully successfully because he is now hard of hearing slash deaf and she's able to kind of put her hands over his eyes and the movie ends and fades to black with them sort of embracing and after all this I'm like okay okay I'm again I am glad that you've found love and Diane is a person who's waiting for you on the other end and lovely lovely but I also want to be like this chick blew pot smoke in your mouth and (laughs) all of this could have been well no I guess no, no it's okay. a, we're not going to put nuclear holocaust on Diane. I know, I know. I'm not going to shame her. But I don't know. 
I just don't buy this relationship. I don't it know that it's so much better if it was just a one night thing. No, I I agree with that. And and also also the way it ends with like you said she sneaks up, she puts her hands over his eyes or his ears or whatever just sort of indicating that he's lost what he had but he's gained her or something. It just feels like the friend, you know, in America if it was a studio, an American studio watching the movie uh, or giving it to us test audience, you know, the the executive would get to the end where everything blows up and they toss the wreaths at sea and they would say, yeah, but we need a happy ending with, you know, socks and maybe Diane and maybe we show up at their wedding and we see that they're getting married. This is a French film. Let's keep that in mind. And so I can imagine the French executive looking at this and going, this is not depressing enough. And <laughs> we we must add a thing at the end where she, she sneaks up and reminds him how terrible his life will be from here on out. Oh, no, <laughs> I think that's so cynical. That's such a cynical <laughs> outlook. I feel like that's a more American ending if we're going to stereotype it that way. Mm. To me, it's more hopeful. Like, yes, he has lost so much and now he has her. So it sounds like it's, he's going to be okay because Diane is waiting for him. So I actually think it would be a stronger movie if it just ended with him in that funereal scene, they're throwing the wreaths right. and he's looking sad and maybe a little tear right. rolls down. That seems like a stronger ending. That little relationship coda does not work for me. If we could have replaced the relationship with like some other rocket launcher scene, I would have felt like it wrapped up completely. Yeah. yeah. Per- perfect book ending. Sorry, Diane. Sorry, Diane. And also, very interestingly, this has nothing to do with anything, but that actress is not French. She's German. Really? So I don't know if she had a really good French accent or not. I can't remember. But uh, I thought that was very interesting. Oh, I guess that's true. So there you go. Born in Berlin. I just looked. Look at Mm. that. How fun. Little tidbit for you. Well, that takes us to the end of Le Chant de Loupe, The Wolf's Call. And that means it's time for us to geek out. <laughs> awesome. So this was the first time for either one of us to have seen Le Chandeloup, The Wolf's Call. What did you think? You know, I liked it. Um, uh, again, I want to let go of that whole relationship part. I think the scene in the middle where they're trying to determine whether there was the nuclear payload in the missile or not was really strong. And I liked the relationship between Grand Champ and golden ear socks guy yeah. in that we're able to kind of dig into that a little bit. We have not talked about something that is so minor, which is why we haven't talked about it yet, but that I was absolutely fascinated with, which is one of the things in the set dressing on one of the subs. I think it's the Formidable, uh-huh. but I can't remember if it's that or the Titan. There is a fish tank Oh yeah, on the submarine. <laughs> and I don't know why, but I was just like, what is going on? Yeah. Why is, I mean, it seems like so meta in so many ways. Yeah. I, I agree with you that it was, it was very odd. You almost, when you think about it, this comes a little bit around to something I have thought about and I maybe have mentioned on one of these other shows, but is the fact that when you're in a submarine, yeah, you're a bajillion feet underneath the water, but there are no windows. No, that's true. And so you don't really get to experience the ocean. Right. And so so now, you know, you you kind of get like a little tropical ocean-y thing going on and with the fish tank on the sub. Maybe that's what we're doing there. Whose job is it to feed the fish? Some petty officer. That's their gig. It's the same guy, probably, who's the, the guy whose sole job is to stand by the radio. Uh, and, and when the captain says, you know, push the button, they, they push the button. And that's their job. They're the button pusher guy. Mm-hmm. Probably also the fish feeder. You know, when I was a little kid, I had this dream of when I got to be an adult, what I wanted in my life was that I was going to have a shower with a fish tank installed in the wall. It's like putting a fireplace on a fire truck. It's sure it's it, it sort of makes sense. It sort of doesn't, but no. it's unique. There it is. 
which does kind of maybe bring us into a conversation about men and women. I'm trying to recall if, if female, if there are female submariners at this point, I would imagine that there are. I, I believe it's submariners. Submariners. Excuse me. Excuse me. But the people who choose to spend their life in a tin can under the ocean. I mean, I guess what it was kind of nice to see is that I feel like this movie in some ways gave you a glimpse of what it's like to be on tour for a little bit and then to be back out in the ocean. So yeah. going from the Titan to being back on land and then going in again to the Titan slash Formidable. Mm-hmm. I guess that gave it a little more opening. It just felt like you're, you know, you're out at sea for a few weeks. Whereas in the past, I think from watching a few scant submarine movies, it looked like that was almost your entire life. Yeah. It was like the entirety of the film is in this tin can. So this made it feel normal more, I right. would say. You Can't Handle the Truth is the quiz segment of our program. I'm going to ask you, I guess, a few different questions. Uh, Get at least two out of the three questions right. And today you can win the French Nuclear Codes. Today you are playing for the French Nuclear Codes. Are you ready, Jennifer Dassel, for You Can't Handle the Truth? I hope so. Let's do it. Question number one. Wilhelm Bauer, a Bavarian inventor, made the 1855 coronation ceremonies of Emperor Alexander II of Russia extra memorable by including a submarine that did what? Was it A, it submerged musicians under the harbor where they played a concert that could be heard by Alexander on the surface? Was it B, it allowed Alexander's mistress to view the coronation without the knowledge of his wife? Or was it C, it emerged from the water with Wilhelm as its captain and then promptly sunk. Oh my goodness. I have no idea, but I love it. I'm going C. You're going with C. It emerged from the water with Wilhelm as its captain and then promptly sunk. Yes. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It was actually A. It submerged musicians, a three, I believe, under the harbor where they played a small concert that could be heard above water by Alexander. That was my first choice. I should have gone with that. <laughs> it's it's ridiculous to think of, but you know, I'd go to that concert. I'd pay money for that concert. <laughs> All right, that's okay. That's okay. First try. First try. You got you got two more. So let's uh, let's try question number two. The decommissioned American submarine, the USS Ray, reportedly has an oddly religious connection. What is it? Is it A, the sub was built primarily from steel recovered from a collapsed Philadelphia church organ factory? Was it B, a church in Kyoto, Japan uses its bell to call its congregation to worship? Or C, Upon decommissioning, the boat was purchased by the Vatican and renamed the Pope Marine. <laughs> Gosh. Ugh. I mean, I really want there to be a Pope Marine. And I want there to be an opportunity to have the Pope be in the Pope Marine. I'm going to go A. A, the sub was built primarily from steel recovered from a collapsed Philadelphia church organ factory. I feel like answer? there's some judgment in your voice, some incredulity. Maybe we should go B. B, a church in Kyoto, Japan, uses its bell to call its congregation to worship? I really don't know. Let's go. No. You want a hint? Yes. Oh, yes, I want a hint. Today's sermon is on heaven and bell. (laughs) Okay, well, then we're going B. B, a church in Kyoto, Japan, uses its bell to call its congregation to worship. That is absolutely correct. (laughs) Thank you for the hint. Good job. You got uh, one of the two. You got one more chance to uh, win the prize. Let's go to question number three. Come on. In March of 2020, Forbes magazine published a tourist's photo showing Cuba's Delphine submarine off the coast of Florida, a boat that has rarely been seen or publicly photographed. What makes this sub so unusual? Is it A, inexplicably it's painted bright red, making it cool to look at, but not well suited to hiding? (laughs) B, it is reportedly equipped with an underwater bowling alley to pass the time. 
Or C, it is the only submarine left in the Cuban Navy. Oh, I feel like any of those could actually be plausible. I'm going C. C, it's the only submarine left in the Cuban Navy. That is correct. Jennifer Dassel has gotten two out of three. Very good job. That means that you win the French nuclear codes. Congratulations. Thank you. Oh, well, good. Well, then as a as a champion here on You Can't Handle the Truth, you have a question for me to see if you can stump me. So I do. fire away. All right. So we were talking about Le Chant du Loup or The Wolf's Call. So I want to see how much you know about werewolf movies. Oh, great. Which of these werewolf movies was voted the number one werewolf film by users of IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes? I am going to read four options to you in order of release. Okay. Number one, The Wolf Man from 1941. Number two, An American Werewolf in London from 1981. Number three, Ginger Snaps from 2001 or Underworld from 2003. All right, so give them to me again. We've got A. The Wolfman. The Wolfman. B, American Werewolf in London. C. Ginger Snaps. Ginger Snaps, which I've never heard of. Neither had I, to be fair. And D, Underworld. Underworld. All right. I think there's a difference I've got to split between what's a good film and what's a film that users of Rotten Tomatoes and IMDb would know better than others. True. You got to know your audience. That's right. This is a poll here. I'm going to rule out Ginger Snaps just because I've never heard of it. You've never heard of it. I'm going to imagine not enough people have heard of it to be able to vote uh, high enough to overcome the other film. So I'm going to I'm going to toss that one out. I think A might be a little old to show up in a poll like this as being that high, even if it is a really good movie. So that leaves me with American Werewolf in London and Underworld. I just don't want it to be Underworld. So I'm going to guess B, an American Werewolf in London. An American Werewolf in London is number two. Ah, Sorry. The correct answer was The Wolfman from 1941. Stop it. Yes, I know. This came as a surprise to me too. And Ginger Snaps, which again, I've never heard of, is number three. So that rated fairly high. Underworld, by the way, was actually number nine. Oh, man. Yeah. Hey, maybe that can be one of the next subgenres is werewolf films. Yep. I've got you already backed up. We'll start making a list. We'll keep collecting those and uh, be right back to you after this ad break. What if, and follow me here, what if the Mona Lisa at the Louvre Museum in Paris is a fake? Or what if artist Vincent Van Gogh, you know, the sunflowers and starry night guy, he didn't kill himself, but instead was actually murdered. You'll hear these incredible stories and a lot more when you subscribe to the Art Curious podcast. How did a cutthroat rivalry between two Renaissance masters culminate in one of the greatest artworks of all time? And was a British painter actually the real Jack the Ripper? On Art Curious, host and, truth be told, my lovely voiced wife, Jennifer Dassel, explores the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history. And do you need to love art or even know anything about it to love this show? Are you kidding me? Before listening to Art Curious, I knew exactly nothing about fine art or the weird and amazing stories that seem to follow around some of its most iconic works and artists. Like, how did Leonardo's Salvador Mundi become the most expensive artwork ever sold at auction? And where has it disappeared to ever since? A best-of recommendation by reviewers at Oh The Oprah Magazine, PC Magazine, Salon, Uproxx, it goes on and on. Art Curious is podcast storytelling for the art lover and the art novice, like me, and maybe you. 
It's the juiciest, the most shocking, and the most fascinating tales from the world of paintbrushes, printmakers, and patrons. Season 9 is out now, so subscribe today to the Art Curious Podcast with Jennifer Dassel and find out more about the show at artcuriouspodcast.com or by searching for Art Curious, that's one word, in your favorite podcast app. The Art Curious Podcast. That's A-R-T-C-U-R-I-O-U-S. The Art Curious Podcast. Subscribe for Season 9 now. This is Subgenre. We're talking about the Chanteloupe with Jennifer Dassel. Let's talk about our thoughts, our final thoughts, I guess, on this film. It's time for Rave Rental or Refund. So give me your give me your final opinion on Le Chanteloupe. Is it a rave? Would you go see it in the theater and pay really good money for that? Uh, is it a rental? Are you going to wait for it to come to the streaming platforms? Or is it a refund? I can't watch this anymore. Please give me my French francs back. I don't have francs anymore. My euros <laughs> back. Euros. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going, uh, I'm going rent on this one. I liked it. I'm glad I saw it. But I'm probably not going to watch it again unless you need me to for a follow-up podcast. Uh, No, but again, I liked it. I didn't think there was anything horribly wrong about it. There are some quibbles that I have, as we've discussed many times with the relationship aspect and, of course, the rocket launcher scene. But in general, you know, it was enjoyable. Yeah, I think I'm on the exact same page as you. It, It was enjoyable. I watched it. I got through it. Uh, it had some good moments in it. It had some horrible moments in it, but I'm not willing to say that it was a bad movie. It was it was a good movie. It just wasn't a great movie. I'm I'm a rental. Yeah, Jennifer Dassel, thank you so much for being on Subgenre. I appreciate it very much. I appreciate you spending your Valentine's Day morning uh, with me talking about submarine movies from France. Tell the people uh, what you're doing and and where they can find you and anything else we should know. Art Curious, the podcast, can be found wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can also find it at artcuriouspodcast.com and on Twitter and Instagram at artcuriouspod. And you can buy my book, Art Curious, Stories of the Unexpected, Slightly Odd, and Strangely Wonderful in Art History, wherever you find books. Check out Season 9 of the Art Curious Podcast. Buy the book. Go check out Jennifer Dassel on the socials. And uh, Jen, thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for the nepotism. (laughs) (laughs) This has been Subgenre, a podcast about the movies. Subgenre is a production of Kabunki and is recorded and mixed at Studio K. This episode was written, produced, and hosted by me, Josh Dassel, alongside my guest host, Jennifer Dassel. Our theme music is Still Room on the Night Train by Ketza, featuring Solar Flare. If you love the show and need more, subscribe and leave a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us. Believe me when I say it's massive in helping other listeners find us just like you did. For even more subgenre and to support us with a donation, visit our website, subgenrepodcast.com. We also do the Insta and Twitter thing, both at subgenrepod. We'll welcome you back soon for our next episode. But in the meantime, please remember, we're all different. No matter what your subgenre, be kind to who you meet. That's a wrap.
Kabunki.